Amen. Okay, so today we finish the third missionary journey. Um, we've looked at the three together, and we'll stop short of the end of chapter 21, but we'll look at the end of Paul's journey and how he is now looking to go to Jerusalem, and from Jerusalem he'll, he'll have his final journey to Rome. This is already uh, in his heart, that he would go to Jerusalem. We know that one of the primary purposes of that, he wanted to deliver the money personally that he'd been collecting for the poor in Jerusalem. And after that, his desire was to go to Rome. We know he ends up going to Rome, not perhaps quite as he planned. Uh, he goes under arrest as a prisoner because of his appeal to Caesar. Um, and he spends his, uh, his final days, two imprisonments uh, in Rome at the end of his ministry. But we're, we're, we're now on the third missionary journey, and he's now thinking about heading back to Jerusalem. In the last chapter, chapter 20, we were with Paul in Miletus, where he was with the elders that were brought from Jerusalem, so from um, Ephesus. So let's start by looking at a quick map. And this is the third journey, starting and normally finishing in Antioch, although it, it really he doesn't get back to Antioch this time, but starting in Antioch, going over the region of Asia Minor, etc., that he did before, um, coming to Ephesus, where uh, we remember he spent three years in Ephesus. That's where he had two years of, of Bible college teaching and investing. That's where all of Asia Minor it says, heard the word of the Lord. So that was an incredibly fruitful, special time he had in Ephesus. Um, and then he goes up uh, uh, across to Europe, to Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica, these areas, down to Greece, down to Corinth. He was going to skip back this way, but then recounts his steps back through Macedonia again, again collecting money, visiting the brethren, strengthening the churches. And then he comes back to from Assos, jumping on a on a, a, a probably a small vessel that's hugging the coastline as they go down here, stopping on islands as they go, and rather than uh, making port and coming to Ephesus, he stops in Miletus, and that's Acts 20, where he where the elders travel from the Ephesus church, and they have that wonderful uh, meeting with joy and tears because of the relationship, the love, the investment. Uh, they're on the beach praying and weeping um, because they realize they're never going to see uh, Paul again. That's the end of chapter 20. So this is where we pick up. We're in Miletus, and now we're heading eventually to Jerusalem. So if we jump in with um, verse 1, came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos. The following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. So here where it says we departed, this is such an interesting verb. It's a word, you know, when, when you say, oh, I couldn't tear myself away, that expression probably is rooted in this meaning. It, it means that there was a very hard departure. Literally, we had to tear ourselves away. Um, and again, that's because of the relationship that they had uh, with each other. It's the same verb that's used in the previous chapter where it speaks about certain men will rise up among you and draw away the disciples, bringing the disciples away from the body of Christ. It's that same word that's, that's tied in there. And verse 2, finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went abroad and 
we set sail. So again, Miletus Rhodes, they're coming down here. They find a ship and they're going to uh, set sail from Miletus down to Cos, down to Rhodes, uh, down to Patara. And now they're got on, a, on a larger vessel. They're going to head across the, uh, the sea. It's not a continual trip on one ship. They're changing vessels as they need to because certain ships would have different destinations, like kind of changing buses, you know, had to get on a different ship. And I love this. It says, and we found a ship. Finding a ship. Also in verse 4, we found disciples. In verse 5, and we went on our way. I love those phrases because there's nothing really profound about them. There's nothing that says that there was this glowing, supernatural, Holy Spirit guidance system. They were just, okay, we need to get across the sea. Let's find a ship. Let's go look for the disciples. And they're wandering through the streets and asking people. They find the disciples. And this is very much part of our normal, practical life. We don't always necessarily sense the move of God, the leading of God. Nevertheless, this story also bears out that God certainly was leading them. And this is something that we can really rest in as believers. Uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, that famous life verse of trust in the Lord with all your heart, acknowledge Him in all your ways, lean not on your own understanding, and He will direct your paths. So the first part is our responsibility, best we know how, in our heart. The second part is His. He will direct our paths. It's a wonderful resting place in that truth. Um, Verse, skip over to verse 3. And when we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria and landed in Tyre. This is where a map comes in handy alongside the book of Acts. There's a few places mentioned there. When we had sighted Cyprus, so they're coming across here, and when when Cyprus, this would have been a few days' journey, maybe four or five days, when they saw Cyprus, they sailed below it or south of it, is is what it's uh, saying in that verse, Um, and landed in Tyre, So this is on the mainland in Phoenicia. um, And there the ship was to unload her cargo. So if you like, that was the end of that ship. Now we need to walk or find another vessel for the next part of the the trip. And verse 4, And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. And I love these little phrases in the book of Acts because when you read it, you realize, oh, there could have been so much more written about that. The whole week, the Apostle Paul was with these disciples in Tyre. What happened? What did they talk about? What was the theme? How was the fellowship? And we we don't know all the details, but it must have been such a sweet time for these disciples to meet with the Apostle Paul, who no doubt they would have heard about. Every Christian in this era knew the story of Saul of Tarsus who became the Apostle Paul and heard about the missionary journeys and the Jerusalem Council. For sure if they hadn't met him yet, uh, by, maybe they went to the Ephesus Bible School, we don't know, but some of them it would have been the first time they met with, met with him. So therefore he spends a week with them. And we could ask the question, well where did this church in Tyre come from? Because Paul hadn't been there on his missionary journeys. All of a sudden we find he He greets the disciples. He looks for the disciples. And perhaps it comes from back in chapter 11 of Acts. um, We remember uh, 
that's where the persecution is beginning. We look back to chapter 7, Stephen is stoned. Chapter 8, the, the scattering. Disciples begin to go out because of the persecution in Jerusalem. And they're obviously taking the gospel with them. And in chapter 11, verse 19, it says, And the disciples were scattered unto Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. So it tells us that disciples were scattered to Phoenicia, and perhaps that's where uh, this church came from. So you could say that in a roundabout way, Paul did have something to do with this church, but it was when he was called Saul of Tarsus, because he was the one that started the persecution. How ironic that years later, he is the apostle Paul, visiting these very disciples, sharing his life story, no doubt, teaching them the word, etc. Incredible. And there's a curious phrase here at the second part of the verse. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. This is one of those uh, seeming contradictions in this passage that often people stumble over because it seems as though Paul has got a word from the Spirit that he's going to Jerusalem. And here it clearly says that the disciples, through the Spirit, told him not to go to Jerusalem. So where is the conflict? Is the Holy Spirit giving a... A conflicting message? What, what, how do we reconcile that? Um, we'll get to that. Let, let's come back to that question. That's an important question. But we know that Paul has it in his heart and, is, and believes that he is compelled or he uses strong language. I am bound in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. That's back in Acts 19.21. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So Paul has this in his heart. He believes it's, it's God's leading. The Spirit is impressing it upon him. Um, also in, in chapter 20, in verse 16, Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he would not have to spend time in Asia. He was hurrying to be at Jerusalem. That's the previous chapter when he meets with the elders in Ephesus. Again, Jerusalem is in his heart. And also in that same chapter, verse 22, and see now I go bound in the Spirit, to be compelled to go to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. So Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem. I don't know the details of what will happen, But I do know, verse 23, that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me. Now, how the Spirit testified, it doesn't say specifically whether the Holy Spirit specifically said to Paul or whether there were gifted uh, men in the church who got a word from the Lord and told Paul that would happen, like Agabus and others like that. But certainly, Paul says, the Holy Spirit testified of this. Every city I went to, the Holy Spirit was testifying that chains and tribulations await me in Jerusalem. And, uh, and that, that was very clear to Paul. So, did Paul know that, that suffering was ahead of him? He certainly did. Did he know that trouble was waiting in Jerusalem for him? He certainly did. Um, at the end of, of chapter 20, again, remember that on the, on the beach when they're saying goodbye to him before the journey continues, we read verbs like kneeling, praying, weeping, hugging, grieving in that chapter. And the main reason was that Paul was leaving 
They knew they weren't going to see him again, and I'm sure woven into that was the idea that if you go to Jerusalem, Paul, you're going to suffer. There's going to be persecution waiting for you. So we go back to that verse. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. So how do we reconcile that? They said, don't go. It reminds us a little bit of Luke's first book, the Gospel of Luke, where he writes about Jesus going to Jerusalem, that his face was set like a flint to go to Jerusalem, knowing what awaited him there. It was Peter also who, in fact, quite passionately rebuked the Lord and said, you will not go to, 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 to the cross, Lord, in Matthew 16. And he rebuked the Lord. And the Lord said, oh, you, you favor the things of men and not the things that are of God. Get behind me, Satan, addressing the spirit behind it. Um, so there we can see, we can understand Peter's, like, Lord, no, we don't want you to suffer. We don't want you to go to the cross. Not really understanding that he had to. It was prophesied. It was the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. We can understand, we can identify with Peter saying, oh, Lord, if, if I have any say in this, I don't want you to go and suffer and go to the cross. I don't want you to be put in the hands of, of evil men. But Jesus rebuked him because although Peter was passionate and in one sense we can understand and it was, it was because of love and relationship, nevertheless it was wrong. It wasn't right. Jesus said, this is why I came. And Jesus said, not my will, but, but the Father's will uh, be done. So, in the next verse, verse 5, when he, when he had come in verse 5, to the end of those days we departed and went on our way and they all accompanied us with our wives and children till we were out of the city and we knelt down on the shore and we prayed. So here's another one of those scenes. On the beach, praying, hugging, weeping, another farewell. And, um, and, and I, I, I've discovered that that's often the case in ministry, in missions, uh, lots of hellos and goodbyes and farewells. And that's a, it's a, it's a, sometimes there's a few tears involved, but actually it's a beautiful thing to have those connections with people. And that was what Paul experienced all the way around. And imagine, you know when you meet another Christian you've never met before, and yet somehow there's a wonderful deep connection? Like the depth of fellowship can be very deep, very quickly with another believer. You never notice that. But in the world, maybe it takes a long time to get intimate and connected and pour out your heart with someone. But as believers, there is a, a mutual faith, a mutual life that we, we drink of the same spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. There's a mutual faith in Romans 1. There's these things that you share on a spiritual level. So even though Paul would not have met many of these Christians... There was wonderful fellowship. Uh, and that was one of the promises of Jesus to his disciples. Remember, he says, if you, if you um, help me with the language, uh, if you, I forget the term, if you lose your life for my sake, I will reward you with many uh, homes and in in, in people in this life and the life to come. So he says, in this life, there'll be a reward for your sacrifice. If you lay down your life, take up your cross, respond to the call that I have on your life, I will add people to your life. There will be many blessings that will result of that, and often in the form 
of people. So, um, verse 6. He says, And when we had taken leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. And when we had... Do I have that verse? I don't think I have verse 7. I don't have it here, but... It says, when we have finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemy. Oh, there you are. So we, from, they probably walked this, uh, this, this distance down to uh, Ptolemy and uh, greeted the brethren and stayed with them one day. So another similar thing. This time just one day, but again, greeted the brethren, fellowship, open homes. Um, perhaps in your Christian life, you've had that experience where you've housed a Christian, you've not really known before, or you've been housed by a Christian that hasn't known you before, but there's beautiful fellowship involved. He salutes the brethren in Tolmai in verse 28. It says, And on the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea, which, by the way, is such a magical place in Israel, on on the coast of the Mediterranean. It's got... Uh, one of Herod's old palaces, partly in the sea and submerged with an old swimming pool, and there's a, um, you know, where the chariot races would take place. There's an amphitheater, so impressive. And of course, it's beautiful Mediterranean weather and clear blue sea and shells, and there's an aqueduct. We normally would finish the trip with the, the last day, the sunset over the aqueduct in Caesarea. It's an incredible place, and the ruins. Uh, in that place are really quite something to look at. So they come to Caesarea, and notice this. They enter the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. It says, now this man had four daughters who were virgins who prophesied. Now notice it says, and they stayed, uh, they stayed with him. They stayed with him for, for some days, many days. And this is one of those verses, if you're reading the book of Acts, you might s- skip over this. It's worth hit, hitting the pause button and considering. What, what is it that strikes you about this verse? Anything? Hmm? Okay. They're, they're not married. They're virgin da- daughters, yeah. But anything else about the... Where? Okay. Okay, that's true. Yeah. Um, does it tell us how many days? It just says and stay with him. Yeah, and the, and it says verse ten. And we stayed many days. So it doesn't actually tell us exactly how many, but many a week, maybe more. We don't know. But um, right, it's the same Philip that what? Right. This is the same Philip who fled Jerusalem because of the persecution and ended up preaching the gospel in Samaria, meeting the Ethiopian, remember? And it says here, he was one of the seven. So if you remember back to Acts 6, there were seven spirit-filled men who were chosen to serve, to be servants. We could say deacons in in seed form in, in the church as the church was organizing. He was one of the seven. Who was another one of the seven? Who are the two most famous of the deacons? Philip and Stephen. Right? Stephen, the first martyr 
of the early church. So Philip and Stephen would have been incredibly close friends. Young men, brothers in the Lord, with the zeal of their faith, being appointed in the church, and both of them also being incredible preachers. And Philip saw his friend Stephen stoned to death and martyred at the hands of Saul of Tarsus. This is about 20 years later. A lot has happened in those 20 years. Paul's missionary journeys, the Jerusalem Council, and and all of the churches being planted, revival happening. Philip has been in Caesarea for 20 years. The last time we saw him was at the end of Acts chapter 8. It says, and Philip went to Caesarea. And then fast forward 20 years, this, this is where we pick it up which is another wonderful principle, and it's this, that not everyone is called to go and do foreign missions and travel the world like the Apostle Paul. Some are called to be faithful in their local Jerusalem or their local Caesarea or local Peace Haven. Uh, Just to be faithful where God has called you to be. For 20 years, that's what Philip had done. He had a ministry there. Um, he, He got married. He fell in love. He had a daughter. Then he had another daughter. And then he had another daughter. And then they said, one more time, we'll try for a boy. And they had another daughter. And he had four beautiful daughters that rose up. They were in the ministry. They were gifted. They were used by God. And one day, the end of this third missionary journey, the Apostle Paul and others come to Caesarea, and they stay together for many days. Wow. It's worth imagining what what they would have talked about. The amazing grace, as Paul wrote about in his epistles. Oh, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle, but the grace that's been bestowed upon me. And I labor more abundantly than them all, but the grace that's with me. And just talking about the grace of God, shown, shown in their lives. Incredible little verse tucked in there. And I remember seeing that verse, because when you're in Israel, you're typically um, looking up the words of the places you're going to. And when I looked up Caesarea, that word popped up in that verse. And it was the first time I remember ever making that connection of Paul and, and, uh, and Philip being, being together for those days, many days. So, if we go to verse 10. And we stayed many days. A certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now, this may jog a memory. That name may sound familiar because we've heard of him before. And again, this is back in chapter 11, where there was persecution brewing in Jerusalem. It says in 11.28 that Agabus, who was a prophet, got a prophecy and prophesied of the famine that would come to Jerusalem. And that happened. His prophecy came, came true. So Agabus was known to be an effective prophet in the early church. And this is the same Agabus that comes to Caesarea, and he's got a word For Paul, what does he say? Verse 11. And when he had come to us, Luke writing, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and often, particularly in the Old Testament, the prophets were very graphic like that. They would use object lessons. And he said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of of the Gentiles. So this is another very clear prediction with more details, this time 
not only saying you've got trouble and tribulation waiting for you, but specifically saying that the Gentiles will hand you into the hands, sorry, the Jews will hand you into the, put you in the hands of the Romans, just like happened to Christ. So, verse 12, as we may understand, now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul is hearing this from his brethren in different places. Don't go to Jerusalem. They pleaded with him. And notice the word, we. We pleaded. Luke, even Luke himself, who's been on the missionary journeys with Paul, is pleading with him, Paul, listen, please don't go. We heard the prophecy. You heard the prophecy. You'll be given into the hands of the Romans. You will be bound. You will suffer. Verse 13, and Paul answered. And he said, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, we understand the heart of the disciples, of Luke, of the apostles, the, the uh, other elders, etc. We understand the heart of them. But Paul knew what was ahead of him. You may remember back in Acts chapter 9, at Paul's conversion, when the Lord appears to Ananias, the little disciple from Damascus, he says to him, he is a sanctified vessel for me and I will show him the many things he must suffer for my namesake. <clears throat> So the Lord, obviously, by now, had shown Paul the things that he must suffer for his name's sake. So he knew that. Paul understood that. He'd accepted that. So we see that even though the heart was was right in these men, they were not correct in their conclusion. There's a great lesson in that. That even though the data may be correct... Or data. Do we say data or data? Either, either. (laughs) Even though the information might be correct, the way we interpret it or apply it, the way we make our conclusions could be wrong. We are fallible. We're prone to mistakes. How someone might interpret the Bible or... God forbid, how someone might interpret a dream can be very subjective. and We can make all kinds of wrong conclusions. Or someone could tell you about things happening in their life and be very careful before you begin to add it up for them and make conclusions because we are fallible. The best of men are at best men. One of the things that the Bible is a testimony to is that even the great patriarchs of the faith and even the apostles themselves, Peter being our prime example, made mistakes. Perhaps even the apostle Paul, you read different commentaries on different things in his life, they they say maybe he made a wrong decision. He wasn't perfect. So these disciples, even in this case a prophet, the one who got the word on Paul, and they were pleading with him not to go, and yet it was God's will that he would go. So how do we reconcile that? Paul knew what was 
ahead, Paul answers them, please, by your weeping, you're breaking my heart. I'm ready to go. And this reminds us, let's go back again to, eight, uh, to chapter 20. He, he says, um, remember he says, I don't know what waits for me in Jerusalem, except the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. And notice the next verse. But none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself, that I might finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace. Now that's a verse perhaps you know or we've heard often, verse 24. But the context is right on the heels of him saying, I know I'm going to suffer in Jerusalem. I know what waits for me. But these things do not move me. I'm ready to... to, uh, not only to be bound, but to die in Jerusalem. Let's go back to chapter 21, verse 14. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, the will of the Lord be done. So, Luke and the others are pleading with him, and he's saying, listen, not my will, but the Lord's will be done. And I I believe that this is God's will. I'm ready to die. And in the end, when they saw, he's not going to be persuaded. This is firmly rooted conviction in the Apostle Paul. And he's going to Jerusalem. And finally they said, God's will be done. Because I think the important conclusion to make is because it was predicted doesn't mean it also meant it was prohibited. Just because the Holy Spirit was showing what would happen, that's not the same as saying don't go. We don't read that the Holy Spirit said to Paul, don't go. We read, in fact, that the Holy Spirit was just clearly showing Paul what would happen. And when the disciples got that word of Paul's suffering, they made the additional conclusion, well, then he shouldn't go, but that was the wrong conclusion. So that's how you reconcile it. The Holy Spirit never said to Paul, don't go. And the way they interpreted it, that he would suffer, they said, you shouldn't go. But it was in God's will, and Paul knew that. Paul accepted that. So, when he would not be persuaded, we ceased. They had to submit their sentiment, if you will, or their love, their desire for him. They had to submit it to God's will, which sometimes we don't know or understand fully. So the journey continues. Verse 15, And after those days we packed up and we went to Jerusalem. And also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain mason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. So again we see this principle of of the disciples opening their house um, probably this guy's thinking, I don't know if there's much that I can do, but hey, I can, I can give you a bed for the night, Paul. Wow, what a, I, can honor, I can honor you that way. And that's, that's what was happening. Verse 17, And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Now, there's going to be trouble, but the brethren, the first disciples that they connect with, it says that they received them gladly. Um, He comes, this is not how he leaves Jerusalem. He he comes free, he comes as a free man, he comes of his free will. He connects with the brethren and there's joy and fellowship, but he leaves uh, arrested on his way to Rome 
Um, and it's, it's quite a different story. But again, we see that that's just woven into God's uh, ultimate direction and will. On the following day, verse 18, Paul went on with us to James, and all the elders were present. So first they're meted by the brethren. They stay overnight um, with Mason and others, probably up late. And then the next day, okay, let's go and see the elders in the church in Jerusalem. And if you go back, you remember Galatians uh, 2.9 tells us the pillars of the church, Peter, James, and John. These were the apostles and elders, leaders, among other elders in the church. And James particularly had a very... Uh, leading role in that church. He was uh, the loudest voice in the Jerusalem Council back in in Acts 15, which probably, as far as we know, was the last time Paul had been there, some seven or eight years before. So they go to meet James and the elders are present. And when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. A couple of things to, to notice there. You remember at the end of the second missionary journey, sorry, at the end of the first missionary journey, when they came to Jerusalem at the Jerusalem Council, they recounted what had happened. They told them, Oh my goodness, you should have seen what happened. We went to Derby and Lystra, and Paul was preaching in the synagogue, telling that part, and they were telling the stories, and they were praising God. They couldn't believe what had happened. But now, another two missionary journeys have taken place. Now they've also gone into Europe and Macedonia and Greece. They were three years in Ephesus. They got so much to tell. And this is what they do in this verse. It says, he gives them a detailed report. Fills in the details. Probably stories about, we preached here and this, this conversion and God was doing these signs in Ephesus and there was a riot in Ephesus and, you know, telling them all the stories. Notice, though, that it's it's God-centered. He tells them the things that God had done in the Gentiles. He's not not saying in the name of Paul, but look what God has done through us. Very God-centered. Eyes on the supernatural element of what was happening. And um, that's wonderful for our eyes also to recognize that. Focusing on, of course, we may be the ones that are, um, you know, turning the turning, whatever, pushing the buttons and putting things in place and getting set up. We're the ones that set the stage. Let's use that phrase. But, uh, but it's God who, who has to show up. It's God that gives the increase. It's God that does the work that only he can do. So Paul is saying, we were on the missionary trip and we were getting on this ship and I would stand up and speak, but let us tell you what God did. And notice it says what God has done, what? Among the Gentiles. And as we've explained, the book of Acts is a transitional book. The way it begins and the way it ends is very different. Right? It begins with Peter and the apostles in Jerusalem. It ends with the apostle Paul. Who's that guy? Where'd he come from? In Rome, in prison. Very different beginning and ending. And the book is transitional in the sense that it goes from Peter to Paul, from Jerusalem to Antioch and the uttermost parts of the world, and particularly from the Jews exclusively to the Jews and the Gentiles inclusively. So there's a real shift. And we have to understand when we read the book of Acts that that cultural shift and mindset 
for the Jew, the Jew particularly in Jerusalem, to move from the fact that the, the, the promises that were given to Abraham and the, the Jewish Messiah and the Jewish scriptures, that that is also now going out to the Gentiles and it's all inclusive. Um, it took quite a lot of years, but even for the James and Peter, I mean, later Paul has to rebuke, uh, not later, before this, it would have been historically, but, but Peter came up to Antioch, and it, you read about this in Galatians 2, and Peter, remember, who was the one who got the vision from the Lord in Acts 10 about the Jew and the Gentile, Peter goes up to Antioch and he, he's with the, uh, I forget exactly how, he's with the Gentiles and when there's Jewish believers, he, he, he shows partiality and he goes with the Jews. And Paul gets in his face, nose to nose, and lets him have it, both barrels. And Paul has to rebuke Peter, I mean, of all people, the one who got the vision from, from the Lord. This is how ingrained it was in them and how we understand it would have taken a lot of time, particularly for the church in Jerusalem where it was predominantly all Jewish believers. It's said that perhaps the first million Christians were Jews and then it went on to Gentile churches being planted. So there was a, it took a long time for that, that shift to take place. So, the Apostle Paul, he's had his missionary journeys, and he's telling them what God has done among the Gentiles, right? Because Paul, though he loved the Jews, he recognized that he was the Apostle to the Gentiles. That was his specific um, calling. And verse 20, And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. That's good. But notice the next phrase. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads or thousands of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. Now, it's curious. Read into that what you will. But it seems implicit in what is being said here that there is a a little bit of underlying tension that perhaps is still lingering from the Jerusalem Council. Okay, we'll put no burden on the Gentiles. Just, just tell them to be sensitive towards the Jews, but it's all by grace, and here's the letters. Go on your next missionary journey. But, but we don't really know how, how completely they embraced and understood Paul's ministry and message and mission. So he says here, oh, great, the Gentile church is wow, Praise the Lord, great. But Paul, have you heard about the thousands of Jews? that are getting saved in Jerusalem? And he adds this phrase, and they are all zealous for the law. Now, it seems that though though James is going somewhere with this statement, and he is, where is he going with this? Thousands of Jews have been converted, they're Christians. Have you heard about that, Paul? What's happening in Jerusalem? Thousands of Jews. The bad news is, Paul, They've heard things about you. Hey, I'm just the messenger here. They've heard things about you, and they don't think so favorably of you. They think that you're kind of abandoning, you know, the the law and the ways of Moses and the customs, and you're kind of like forsaking your heritage and your roots, and you're, you're turning, you know, okay, you're ministering to the Gentiles, but the Jews that you meet, you're turning them away from Judaism. You're turning them away from the law. And hey, you know, I know, but that's what people are saying. 
What can we do about it, Paul? I'm so glad you're here, by the way, and I happen to have a plan hatched out already. Let's talk it over. So he does. Verse 21, he says, they, But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. So we have to ask the question, well, what did Paul teach? Did he teach that? Was Paul teaching the Jew that now you, you should, in fact, perhaps even must, forsake all of the Jewish practices? Well, by this time, the book of Romans would have been written uh, for, some, for some years by, the, by this time. Romans 10.3 says, Since they, and he's speaking of the Jewish people, did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, if you take that out of context and you wanted to make an issue with the Jew, you could just say, Christ is the end of the law. But he didn't say that. He said, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Or let's use the word salvation. Christ is the end of the law for salvation. And that was Paul's point. If you want to keep the Sabbath, go at it. But don't say that that earns your salvation. If you want to continue in your Jewish roots and go to the temple and all of that, okay. As long as you understand that that is not the grounds for your salvation. In other words, Paul was not teaching that they should forsake the law, but he was teaching that you are no longer obligated to keep the law. And that's a major difference, isn't it? So, Paul said himself in Philippians 3.9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So Paul was not going around with a mission to say, okay, we want all Jews to stop practicing the law. He was just teaching that that is not the premise or the basis for your salvation. If you want to continue to do that and honor certain vows, and, and that's fine. But that's, it's, you can't put your faith in that. That's not the grounds for your salvation. So James, anyway communicates his plan, and I'll try and rush through this in the next few minutes. Verse 22, What then? The assembly will certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. In fact, I'm sure they all know by now, Paul. Good news travels fast. So he says, Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. And this vow, by the way, was the Nazarite vow. We'll just mention it shortly. And the Nazarite vow was a voluntary vow. You, weren't, you didn't have to do it, but it could be an expression of your devotion. You would choose to do it, that for 30 days, perhaps other time measurements, you would choose that you wouldn't drink of the vine, you wouldn't touch a dead body, and a razor would not touch your hair for 30 days. And at the end of 30 days, you would have a haircut. And you would end the vow and it would be in the temple with a ceremony, and it was often the case that someone else would pay the, the temple fee for that to happen. So they say, Paul, listen, why don't you go along? We know four guys who had just finished this vow. 
we assumed that they were Christians that James knew, but they still wanted to express their devotion this way through the Nazarite vow. Why don't you go along, Paul? In fact, you take them to the temple. In fact, you pay the price for their haircut, the end of the vow. And what an incredible message that will send out to people. People will finally say that these things are not true, that you do have an honor towards the law. So, so Paul complies. So he says that in verse 24, because the elders, James included, want to nullify the suspicion of the believing Jews. Paul himself also wanting to show love and respect for the law and do whatever uh, to help the situation. He doesn't write off the law. Paul would say to you, the law is good. In fact, he wrote that to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.8. We know the law is good if someone uses it properly. There's nothing wrong with keeping the law. That's a good thing. But it doesn't, doesn't merit you anything from God. That's the point. So, their issue was, the, was with the Jewish believers only. He says, but concerning the Gentiles who believe, we've written and decided they should observe no such thing. And that goes back to the letters from Acts 15. The Gentiles, okay, we get it. The law is not something they need to observe, but what about the Jews? We want to keep the Jews uh, happy here. So, verse 26, then Paul took the men, And the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration date of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Typically, they would take the hair that was cut off and have that burn with the offering as a a picture of their, their ending their vow. Now, commentaries have quite differing views on this. Was it right that Paul did this? Like, did he compromise? Like, was he selling out? Was he buckling under the pressure of the, the leaders in Jerusalem? Or, like, should he have done this? And you'll be interested in what you may read about that. Um, and, the, and the question is, what do you think? What's your conclusion? So it's good to think about that. What do we think? When you read that, do you think, oh, Paul, why did you do that? Like, There's a bit of a compromise there. Does that frustrate you? Does it anger you? Does it bless you? Does it encourage you when you read that? So, whatever conclusion we come to, uh, I'll tell you what mine is. And you can take it or leave it. You might be interested. Um, Whatever conclusion we come to, we have come to know Paul's heart. Whether you conclude it was right or wrong, we know that he, what his heart was. We know that there were two major leaning, leading things in his heart motivation right to the end. And it was this, that he desired to reach the unbelieving Jews and Gentiles with the gospel. And number two, it was that he desired so greatly for there to be unity between the Jews and the Gentiles. And if there could be something that could be done that could hit those two targets without selling out, without changing the gospel, without compromising for the the suffering of the work of God, if there's something he could do to hit those two targets where people may come to the faith and where there may be unity in the church, then he would do it. And I think he did it with a pure heart. Whether you think it's the right or wrong decision, The heart, I believe, was right with God. And we read this in 1 Corinthians 9. And uh, I don't have it, but listen 
to me. I'll read the verses. He says, Though I am free and I belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those who are under the law, I became like one under the law. And then in parentheses, he says, though I myself am not under the law. He just wanted to make that clear. I'm not under the law. But I I became as one who was under the law that I might win those who are under the law. That they might experience the liberty and the emancipation that I have because I was also once under the law. And I'll come under it if it means that they could come out of it. He says in verse 21, to those who not having the law, I became like one not having the law. And then in parentheses he says, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. Perfect law of love, higher law. So as to win those who, not have, who don't have the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. And I think if you take those verses and you apply it to this particular situation, it sheds some light on it. This was what Paul was doing. He wasn't buckling to the leaders in Jerusalem. He wasn't compromising. He was desiring that people would come to know Christ and that there would be unity in the church. We read that phrase, all this I did for the sake of the gospel. In his heart, he was certainly living in grace, not under the law. He wanted them to experience the grace of God in their own lives. So we'll end there because really now he's landed in Jerusalem and he's connected with the church and this last little event has happened. Certainly it's the end of the third missionary journey. He's in Jerusalem and that's where it ends. Ironically, James's plan and Paul's desire doesn't quite unfold the way that they had hoped. It actually ends with there being uh, the Jews stirring people up when they see Paul and these men, and Paul gets arrested. He makes claim to his Roman citizenship that, that, that you cannot scourge a Roman, and he gives the, the, the right as a freeborn Roman. He says, I appeal to Caesar. And they say, okay, if he appeals to Caesar, to Caesar he will go. And that's begins his journey to Rome, which is the last uh, section of the book. So uh, we neatly finish off the third missionary journey tonight, and then uh, some uh, later point in the summer we'll announce we'll pick up again with Paul's journeys to Rome. So, Father, we thank you for this chapter and these principles. Uh, We ask and pray that you would lay some of these principles to our heart. You would help us, lead us, teach us, give us wisdom and understanding and bless it to, to, our, to our feet, our hands, our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.